Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome episode with Josh Rezepka, a trumpeter, creator, author, uh, just all around, uh, who's got a lot of great wisdom to share with us, I wanted to take a second to remind you to listen to the end of the episode where our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum, will leave us with a secret message. And number two, I wanted to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Have you ever set your trumpet on the ground, then picked up your phone, and then you actually dropped your phone on your trumpet and dented it? Because I have. <laughs> when that happens, Houghton Horns is here for you. At Houghton Horns, they do their repair work in-house, so you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen doing the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations, so if you were looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you're a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here with Josh Rezepka, who is a trumpeter, an author, a creator, multifaceted, a modern multifaceted musician. That's what my bio says about me. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But, you know, it's, I guess it's true. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to have this conversation with Josh today. He uh, and I, uh, I guess... We got in touch with each other um, through just some YouTube content. I was I started posting, and he reached out to me in support. And um, we've been sort of trying to find a way to to chat and get to know each other a little bit. And we thought, why don't we make a podcast episode out of it too? And so um, I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Before we get started, Josh, thank you so much for joining me on my show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate uh, you asking me, and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So as always with these, we'll just get started with kind of digging into as far back as you want to go about telling us kind of where you've been and the process of getting where you are. Sure. So uh, my trumpet journey, I'll say, uh, started uh, all the way back in fourth grade. And uh, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio and Akron, Ohio. And um, I went to a, uh, um, a private Jewish day school, you know, up through eighth grade. And um, it was a small school, but one of the great things was that they had band and there weren't a lot of students in the school. So everyone was required to be in band, like whether you wanted it or not, you were picking an instrument and you were playing it. Um, it wasn't optional. So, you know, I was excited about being in band and, you know, they, they, they gave me a trumpet. They sent me home with a trumpet and my first trumpet teacher was actually a trombone player, uh, Craig Hansford. And I believe he is in Europe now playing trombone with some orchestra, but he was a student at the University of Akron at the time. And he, you know, kind of, he, I, you know, he put me in the right direction as a beginner. You know, he gave me 
good ideas about breathing and posture and and practicing. And I'm sure he told me way more than I remembered or even implemented into my practice. But, um, you know, that's kind of where it started. And I would guess through, you know, high school, you know, I was, I was practicing. I enjoyed playing and I got good encouragement from, um, my parents. My dad would, would get me, uh, you know, trumpet CDs. He was like buying me, uh, Dizzy CDs and Maynard Ferguson and, you know, trying to get me interested in it because he, he enjoyed listening to jazz. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's all good. And, um, and, you know, my parents were very supportive of my music in that they got me private lessons all the while. And, you know, so they saw that, that I was interested and I had some, uh, uh, some bit of talent there that I was, you know, developing and I would use practicing as like a way to get out of doing chores and, and whatnot, you know, because it was kind of like, you know, if you're reading, if you're like doing something positive and productive, like then like maybe, maybe you don't have to do as much cleaning. You don't have to. So I was like practicing all the time because I enjoyed practicing and playing, but also it's like, well, if I practice like another 20 minutes, then maybe I don't have to do like as much cleaning as my siblings. Uh, so maybe there's a little incentive there as well, <laughs> but, awesome. uh, you know, I was playing and, but it wasn't really until like 11th grade in high school that I got like serious about playing the trumpet and, you know, I was doing well. And I, you know, I think I was, you know, maybe at the beginning of 11th grade, I was, you know, first chair already, like in high school, I was, I was doing well. However, um, there was a period which I became, serious, you know, and it was kind of like a light bulb went off and I was, uh, I was listening to, uh, Wynton Marsalis's carnival album, which I think has inspired like countless trumpeters all over the world. Sure. Yeah. And that album, it just blew my mind. I was, I didn't even know the trumpet could really play and sound like that. Previously, I was really listening to jazz. I was listening to, you know, high notes, like kind of stereotypical, uh, you know, trumpet stuff. And here I hear like this, this classical album and I didn't know what double tonguing was. I didn't know what triple tonguing was. And I went to my teacher and I was like, Hey, I want to play the carnival of Venice for solo and ensemble. And I never done contests. I'd never done any of that before. And he was like, well, um, I'll teach it to you, but I'm, I'm letting you know, it's going to be a lot of work. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And so like, I just dove into it. And then that, that started this period where I started practicing two, three, four hours a day, just like really focused. I was just like, this is my goal. And, you know, I'm here and I want to get here. And how, uh, however, I, however much I need to practice, like I'm going to do it. And really just over a couple months, it like transformed my playing mm. and, you know, I went from not being able to multiple tongue to playing uh, this solo for contests and I got, you know, the highest ratings. And I guess that was like my first solo performance because, you know, like you go to contests and anyone can show up and, and listen to anyone. And most people like have their parents and a couple people and and people saw I was playing Carnival of Venice and my room was like packed. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, wait a minute. So, you know, it it went well enough and I, and that really kind of, got the ball rolling. And it was through that that so many opportunities came. 
um, you know, my band director, of course, took notice. And then my teacher, who had really uh, seen all the progress I had done in the past couple of months, mentioned it to uh, someone he was playing a gig with in Cleveland, Steve Enos, who was, uh, and still at the time, is at uh, Tri-C, Cuyahoga Community College. And they have a big jazz festival in Cleveland through Tri-C. And he runs this uh, this all-star high school band in Tri-C. And so I got invited to go be a part of that. And we went and competed at like the Monterey Jazz Fest, uh, you know, high school invitational. I mean, it was just like all these great opportunities to be associated with the Jazz Fest and to open for different artists. And that was kind of like, you know, my, my uh, introduction into all of these new opportunities. Um, I will say it's like, so I did have those great opportunities, but there was like, on the other side of the coin, there was all of these opportunities that were available to me that I really didn't even know about. And, you know, it's like, and this is one thing that, that, I, that I see or that I've mentioned, uh, you know, to some people, it's like, I didn't know about the Cleveland Orchestra Youth Orchestra until my senior year or that, you know, Akron Youth Symphony. Like these were the, like the, you know, classical ensembles available to students at the time. And no one ever told me about them. And I went to an arts high school and it's like, <laughs> no, there was never, uh, you know, someone saying, hey, check out this, this audition. Like you should try out for this or you should check this out. Um, so I did have, you know, I did have great, great, great support from my family and uh, from my teacher. But it's like, I, I feel like there was probably a lot more opportunities out there than I took advantage of. Um, nonetheless, I still ended up, uh, you know, getting, uh, serious enough about music that by the time that I got into 12th grade, I was just, you know, that's what I was doing. And it's like, when, when the time came to apply to colleges, then it's like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to do music school. And, uh, somehow my family agreed and let me, so I've got to <laughs> thank them for that. Um, so in college, I went to Oberlin for my undergraduate. And for my master's, I went to Boston University. And at Oberlin, I, I did a, a kind of a unique program because I double, I double majored. Um, and it was like a double performance major in classical and jazz. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anyone who's listening just because, you know, when you think about it, you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to like really be well-trained. I'm going to have a lot of versatility. But... It's two lessons a week. It's double all the ensembles. It's double the juries. Oh yeah. It's two theory tracks. It's two history tracks. Um, it took you know it should have been a five year program. It, I I managed to do it in four and a half just because I took some summer classes. But man, it was like it's like literally just two degrees put together. Yeah, but it's one piece of paper. You know, it's just it's like performance. <laughs> um, but. For me, that's exactly what I wanted. And going in, that's exactly what I wanted because I did know then that, well, I wouldn't say that I knew, but like I didn't have this desire to be an orchestral trumpet player. You know, so many, so many trumpeters go into college, like I'm gonna play in an orchestra or I'm gonna, well, the first time I ever played in an actual orchestra with strings was at Oberlin because I never had that experience in high school um, just because I didn't know about it. And I guess that's kind of what, what probably shaped like what I wanted to do. It's like, okay, I knew that if I had the classical foundation, that it was really going to help my trumpet playing. And then I knew that if I, if I had a jazz degree, that it was going to really 
make me pretty versatile and, and expose me to a lot of new sounds that I grew up listening to and that I really enjoyed. So, so that's what I did with that. And then um, Roy Popper was my teacher at Oberlin uh, who got me started on stamp. And I still do stamp every single day. And, it's like a religion, uh, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like every day I do my stamp. You know, I recorded the whole stamp warm-up on piano. On, uh, it's, I got it on my phone and my computer. So when I'm traveling, when I'm on the road, I can do the warm-up exactly the same. Just listen to the recording. And most mornings, I actually just use the recording instead of my, my keyboard that's here just because it's like, it's easy and it's there. Mm -hmm. um, and then my jazz teachers... Uh, I studied with Kenny Davis primarily, who's like a North Northeast Ohio trumpeter, and and uh, you know he's he's an older guy and he's played with everyone. You know he was like in the house band at in in all the venues in Cleveland. So when yeah Aretha would come in or Stevie Wonder or whomever, you know he was playing in the backup bands with them. Wow. And you know he did like a little stint with the uh, uh, the Ellington band uh, when Mercer took over. And uh, you know he's I mean you know you you talk to him and. You know, he's played with Johnny Hartman. He's played with, you know, you, you name it. Like he's played with all these incredible artists. So, um, you know, I got to work with him primarily and then Marcus Belgrave as well. And Marcus, of course, is famous for being, uh, you know, a Detroit, uh, legendary uh, Detroit jazz trumpeter. And and he he played with Ray Charles. And I mean, he played with like everyone. He was in Jazz Lincoln Center for a minute and he's on all these Motown albums. So it's like, I got such a great and like diverse, um, you know, uh, like experience when I was at Oberlin, uh, which I think was great because I'm not sure that I, I would have gotten like, I'm not sure I would have gotten that at, at every music school mm -hmm. that I could have applied to, because some of them are pretty focused. You know, it's like you you're going to be an orchestral trumpet player. So, real happy that I ended up at Oberlin, and then I did take time off, like a year and a half after my undergraduate, before I did my master's, which I thought was like, personally, I thought it was important that, okay, I'm gonna work as a trumpet player and I freelanced and I taught and I was like, okay, this is cool. Now I'm gonna apply for my master's. And I ended up going to Boston University and studying with Terry Everson, which uh, was incredible because Terry is the best. And he's just like, <laughs> you know, he's such a great teacher. He is like the nicest guy. He's just impossibly good on the trumpet. And, you know, he plays the piano like a monster. Uh, he would like, you know, kick all of our asses in, in racquetball. We would play racquetball <laughs> in the morning. Man, I didn't he's know so that. good. Oh yeah, I mean, this was early because Terry lives out in the suburbs and he lives in Framingham and, and to get into Boston means that he has to, he starts his mornings early so he can beat traffic. So we'd play at like 7 a.m. And that would just wreck me. Um, good workout. And, and uh, you know, it's like he, he had been, he had, he had been uh, conquering students in the racquetball court for many, many years. And uh, I'm not sure if he still does, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. That's amazing. I, like I said, I didn't know that kind of stuff. You know, like I have great relationships with my teachers, but we weren't playing racquetball, you know what I mean? Like it's a uh, interesting that you have that kind of relationship with with him. Yeah. So and so I'll, yeah, it was awesome, and he was very, uh, you know, he was very uh, um, cool with like 
me showing up and being like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I play. Like, this is my style. And he's like a soloist, you know, and he, but he also plays orchestral, you know, he subs with the, with the BSO and he does the, the, uh, BMOP, the Boston, uh, modern orchestra project. And, mm-hmm. you know, he does so many great things, but he was like, you know, I, I, I remember like the first lesson or two was like, this is what I'm playing. This is what I like to do. And, you know, he was perfect because he was, he was just like, okay, well, let's, let's help you towards your goals. You know, what you're working for. Um, so two years in Boston was great. And a little bit after I graduated, um, I can't remember exactly what year I'd have to, you know, look through some photos, but, um, after I graduated from BU, I moved back to Northeast Ohio and then I was teaching and I was gigging and, um, then I had an opportunity to study on and off for a year with Michael Sachs. And uh, I'll credit him as, as also being like one of my primary teachers, just in the sense that he was so influential and transformative to my playing. I didn't have as many lessons with him as I did with Terry or with Roy or with Kenny, um, you know, or with, with all these people, you know, going back. However, um, you know, the impact from those lessons was really uh, very, very transformative in my playing. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I kind of want to stick on one point here that you were talking about with the stamp. Uh, that I'm minimally familiar, right? I was not uh, exposed to stamp. I did a lot of like Chickowitz, right? Like that was the kind of my training. And so what I'm interested to hear from you, because you say you do it every single day. Now I'm a you know I'm all about this like practice organization stuff, right? So I'm a really big fan of like sort of controlled variety. Like it looks like variety, but it's kind of like you're playing the same stuff. But with something like a warm-up uh, of, of what I consider to be a warm-up, I actually also do pretty much exactly the same thing every single morning uh, with the Chickawids, and I have specific reasons for doing it. But I'm kind of curious what you would say Um Maybe not about stamp in particular, if we have sort of non-trumpet players listening, but just the idea of doing the same warm-up each day rather than sort of being like, well, what do I feel like doing or what is this? Like, what's the value for you of doing the same thing at the start each day? Uh, That's a a good question. Um, So for me, I really feel the value in doing the same thing every day. And it, it, it varies like minimally, you know, every... Maybe every couple of years I'll adjust something, <laughs> but like maybe <laughs> maybe every so often though I'll I'll you know extend the range of something mm-hmm. you know uh, on the day of. But for me, it's really that I can just day by day try and make what I'm doing a little bit better, a little bit easier, you know, more free feeling, uh, more resonant, more open. And one thing that I've you know, come to realize with, with myself and with playing is that I think that for me, I've really tried for a long time now to um, like try and get my chops out of the equation as much as possible in the sense that like, I don't want to be thinking about how my chops feel or like what I think my chops are supposed to be doing because the chops change how they feel every day based on what you did the day before based on like how dehydrated you are or what you ate or if you're sunburned or, I mean, there could be a thousand different reasons why your chops are not going to feel right. And I feel like having the same warm up every day, like that is my home base. Like 
okay, I know that this is what I'm gonna do and this is how it feels long-term. And day by day, it's like, should feel like like this when I'm doing my warm up. So like, that's the stability that I'm reaching for. And that is, is I think what allows me to be as consistent as I am as a player. That's like very, very important to me to be um, consistent with my playing. And uh, so I really, I really feel that, you know, consistency in, in practice is consistency in playing. And uh, that for me really starts with like my warm up, and I use air quotes like warm up, and then like my routine that follows afterwards because it's it's pretty static. Yeah, I it's a very similar reason for me. I kind of like to have this sort of uh, guidepost, like I like you said, you know, baseline or home base. It's like this is how I start, and I'm going to use this to sort of feel things out, right? Like. How is it gonna feel today? Like again, I'm not like you said, I'm not trying to focus on my chops, but it kind of gives me a sense of, all right, like here's an average line, and maybe I'm slightly above the average line today. And well, oh, that's awesome. Or maybe I'm slightly below the average line. And yeah, for me, it's like a almost like a centering type thing. You know, I'm just I'm like anywhere else in the world, and then this is helping me bring it, bring it together for my practice session. So I'm mentally and then hopefully with my chops focused as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's actually, it's funny you mentioned that, like, uh, that's something that I um, brought up to a, a friend of mine just this past week. Um, so normally when the world isn't shut down because of a pandemic, I'm on the road uh, quite a bit. I tour with this band under the street lamp. It's kind of like Jersey Boys. They're all former, four former Broadway singers, seven piece band, and we do 50s, 60s, 70s, classic rock doo-wop. And I kind of found my, my warm up to also just be like something that I can bring that's familiar into a new space because I'm like traveling, I'm in hotels, I'm in new theaters mm-hmm. and new venues. And and it's like, okay, well, this is something that like I can create a bubble of, of comfort and familiarity, you know, around myself with my warmup. So then when I get into that new hall, everything is is feeling good because, you know, when you're playing in new spaces, sometimes you're getting more feedback or less feedback. And and, on, and we play with in-ear monitors in, and it's like everything can change uh, depending on the mixing board. And and we travel with our own uh, front of house, but it's like everything uh, still feels and and sounds different in, in soundcheck and during the show. So for me, it's like that's how I can I can really feel like centered and grounded no matter where I am. Yeah. And I like what you're saying about consistency too. And I, I I completely agree. I think it's one thing to be able to, at some point, be able to produce your best playing, but to be able to do it when you want to do it, to be able to do it consistently, I think is important. And I mean, this is a quick story, I think is, uh, for me, it's a nice story to be able to tell about Ryan Anthony. Well, he came and did a class when I was an undergrad and he was playing and it just sounded amazing and it was super consistent. And so we thought we were being smart, you know, and we're like, we're going to ask him, like, how did you develop that? And then we asked him, Ryan, how did you develop this level of consistency? And he's like, I just practiced with consistency. And I feel like that was the answer. And I feel like I'm just now like, 12 years later, starting to understand what that actually means and trying to set up all of my systems like you're talking about, this idea that I'm going to someday become consistent instead of 
I will practice with consistency. I, I would be very, you, you already touched on it. I'd be curious if you have ways to sort of expand upon what that looks like in your own practice to practice consistently, not necessarily develop consistency. Yeah, so for me, there are just like a lot of uh, bases and points that like I wanna hit every single day, no matter what. And I mentioned earlier about how I'm trying to get away from how the chops feel because that changes from day to day. And one thing that I feel that I've learned from years of doing stamp and from years of doing, uh, you know, long tones and and I I really like to teach some of these exercises with with uh, an emphasis on that we're training our air. And so, like for for stamp, for instance, like so many people, they're like buzzing, like I don't, I don't like buzzing. I, or they're like, I love buzzing. But the critics of buzzing, I've found for the most part are, are looking at it as though it's like this calisthenic exercise and that you're gonna buzz in order to develop the strength of the chops or some musculature or like, mm. you know, like that's what they think of buzzing. And they're like, well, when you play the trumpet, you're not doing that. And I'm like, I agree with you totally. Um, however, for me, when I look at buzzing, I look at it as that it is helping me align my air and my ears and my chops. Like that's it. Because the trumpet isn't gonna do that for us. You know, the trumpet is gonna, uh, and I made a, a video on my YouTube about this. Like the trumpet is is going to funnel you to whatever the closest partial is, right? The mouthpiece, you can do any semi, any fraction, you know, any microtonal. So for me, I look at that, I'm like, okay, this is training my ears and my air and my chops to all like do this, this dance, like to work together. And when I think about that, then I'm like, then I start thinking about long tones. And for years I was taught and people told me they're like long tones. This is like, so you can develop your sound. This is so you can, you know, maybe uh, get some blood going or like no one to me, at least that I can remember ever just said flat out like, okay, long tones are a way that you can learn how to develop a steady, consistent airstream for every given note. Hmm. And for me, like that's what I look at long tones as being like, it's an air control exercise. And sure, you can use it to like focus on your sound because like you're sitting on a note and you don't have to think about rhythms and you don't think about anything else. But like at the end of the day, a long tone exercise is is a constant vibration exercise. And to get a constant vibration, you need a constant air. And the air has to be at the exact same flow rate from the from the you know articulation from the beginning of the note until the moment that you stop playing. So when I you know, this is kind of like my thought process with a lot of these, with a lot of these exercises, and, and we're getting a little off from this consistency, but but I'll I'll bring it around. And so, what I'm really trying to, you know, like when I started thinking, like, okay, if I want to be consistent playing player, uh, because I'm freelancing, I'm I'm doing jazz gigs, I'm doing musicals, I'm doing lead stuff, I'm doing, uh, you know, church gigs and piccolo trumpets. Like, I want to be able to play everything that I'm interested in and I want to be able to do it well so that they're going to call me back so that I'll get to, you know, keep working with the musicians I like working with and, and, and grow as a musician. 
then for me, it was like, okay, I need to be able to do everything. I need to be able to like touch base with, with every aspect of my playing, with flexibility, with articulation, with my sound, with, with range, with, um, you know, being comfortable jumping from instrument to instrument. And that's kind of just how I ended up developing my, my whole practice routine so that I do my buzzing. And, you know, when I, when I think of some of these exercises, okay, I'm training my air. Well, that's applicable to all instruments. You know, when I'm training myself how to, how to, uh, because then it's not like, okay, I'm going to practice lead stuff like, or I'm going to practice like high. It's like training my air. And that has just like allowed me to like worry less and less and less about my chops mm-hmm. and think less and less and less about my chops. Cause there've been so many times I've been on the road where my chops didn't feel very good. And thankfully it hasn't happened in a while. Um, I mean, not because of like being home, but like, you know, the last year or two being on the road, it didn't happen very often that my chops weren't feeling good. But there's this couple times where it would be like a, just a brutal tour schedule. You know, 4 a.m. lobby calls, you're traveling, sound check, play a show, travel next morning, sound check. And then like a pops weekend. So it's like a rehearsal in the afternoon and then the show that night. And then the next day, another show. And then the next morning, like a, you know, a matinee, it's like a lot of lead trumpet, all, all condensed into a, a short period of time. And there have been days where it's just like, man, what am I going to do? Like my chops feel bad. And I just know that if I would have let myself get into like the mindset of, okay, how my chops feel is going to be how I'm going to play. Like that's, you know, that's not it. And thankfully it's like, for me, I feel like all the exercises that I do every day really teach me so that like, okay, I know what I need to do with my air and what I need to do, like with everything that I can control, like everything, like what's within my control, everything I can control. I know if I do this, that it's going to yield this result. And that is just like so great because then when your chops really feel like garbage, you can acknowledge and say, okay, this isn't going to feel good, but I'm going to make it through the gig and it's going to sound fine. And, and no one is going to know, you know, any difference. Gosh, this is such a cool conversation to me because uh, I'm going to try to repeat a few things back to you that you said to see if I heard you right. One of the things you just said was, if I do this thing, then I'll know what to expect. The way I kind of have thought about this is that, as if it's like a if-then statement in Excel, right? Like, if this, then this, and then you hit enter. And if a number comes out, then you know every time I input this, I will get this number out. And so then it becomes an equation of like what you're inputting rather than like anything of like you said about how it feels. It's like, if I input this like air or this whatever, I'll get this result that I desire. And that's, I think, a more productive thing, like you're saying, to focus on. Yeah. The other thing you said that I really liked was that talking, it's almost like you sort of summed up in a really nice way why we practice. It's not necessarily to go through all these exercises so we can learn all these things and say, I know how to play the entire Arbin book, but rather... We're using them as exercises to teach ourselves relative realities about playing an instrument so that we can apply that reality to actual music with more success. So like the exercises themselves only serve a purpose to help us understand our playing more deeply. So then we apply that understanding or complexity to the actual playing we're doing. Exactly. 
it's the same reason that you know LeBron does bench press. Like he yeah. he doesn't do that on the basketball on the basketball court. Like you know it's the same reason any athlete is doing all these other exercises. It's to strengthen them and prepare themselves for what they need to do, so that when they're in that brand new situation, you know they're agile, they're strong, they can do it. So one of the totally and like these are like lessons I feel like I've learned from the gym. So one of the one of the most important aspects then, and I'll put it in this context very briefly, and then I'll throw it back to you. When you're deadlifting, there are various cues you can think about. You can think about trying to keep the bar close to your body. You can try to keep it, think about um, pushing the floor away. You can kind of think about like there's oranges in your armpits and you're trying to hold them in there. And that keeps your, generally keeps your back tight. Uh, you know, where you look is a cue for some people for your, for your, um, you know, thoracic spine, sorry, your um, C-spine. Um, anyway, but the result is that the bar moves in a straight line. Like that's the important part, but you can think about all these different things. And then you have all of these other drills that you can do to help sort of get your mind focused on the right cue. So that when you get into the deadlift, you can think about that cue with more success, which then results in the desired outcome. So putting it back into a musical scenario, that's how I view practice. It's This is how we then apply it, is we're trying to look for a specific thing we're learning. Like here's you're talking about with your air. Like now you're trying to figure out how do I use these exercises to feel this thing a little bit more clearly so that I can then take that over here. And so I just feel like that has been lost on me and by nobody's fault other than really not understanding that. And so if I understand what it should feel like to play with air forward, this is my biggest cue right now. I can take that anywhere I want to go and focus on that, knowing that that will produce um, a higher level trumpet playing, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, like everything, it's just, you know, when something's new, it's new. And, you know, like you get that muscle memory, you, you have to kind of do it enough times so that you're, you're familiar and comfortable with how it's going to feel and then what the result's going to be. But then once you've got that dialed in, it's like, okay, now everything you do moving forward is, is going to be just so much better. It's going to allow you to really, um, you know, focus then on being able to transfer it to whatever scenario you're in, you know, whatever, you know, you're learning, you're learning uh, an etude or some type of technique or, or something which is which is going to give you a, a new tool. It's like, okay, once you're comfortable using that tool, then suddenly you can apply it to anything you encounter. And that's that's the biggie for me. It's like taking the exercises that I'm familiar with and then just using those lessons so that when someone sticks a piece of music in front of me that I'm unfamiliar with, I can look at it and say, oh, this, it, you know, in essence is no different than anything else I'm playing. So then this is a big belief of mine. What we do in our routines doesn't inherently have to be hard. It just has to teach us the thing we're trying to learn. I think Correct. sometimes we can get caught up in, I got to play the hardest thing. I got to challenge myself. But for me, I'm starting to think the challenge should be in the quality of my playing. Going back to the consistency discussion, if yes. I keep the quality high on average, then that's a, there's a good chance my, I will have that quality accessible to me when I would like it to be accessible in a performance, an audition, or a sight reading situation whatsoever, whatever. Yeah, so one of the, uh, and this could be maybe even a segue into YouTube, but one of the the great things about the world we're in right now and YouTube is that we can watch videos of all of these legends and all of, you know, all of the greatest players that there are. And 
you know, you, you bring up, it's like, oh, about like playing the hardest music or doing this. It's like, when we look at videos of our heroes and the people who seemingly play effortlessly, right? You know, Ryan Anthony, uh, Alan Vizzuti, right? Wynton Marcellus, Maurice Andre. It's like, you're looking at these videos and you're like, it really does look effortless to them. You know, when, when Hoken Hardenberger is playing, it doesn't look challenging, like it doesn't look like he's trying very hard. And for me, that's very telling. You know, the same, like, you know, look at Sergei Nakarikov playing and it, it's right. like, like he could be taking a nap and he's <laughs> playing things that are, that are arguably impossible for nearly all of us. And it just looks like it's so easy for him. And what I've taken out of all that is, and what I've taken, you know, from all of my practice over the years is that generally speaking, um, like we're our own biggest enemy for playing the trumpet. Like trumpet, I think is actually relatively easy. Like it's like the actual way to play the trumpet. Okay, we make a vibration and we, we our air has to be steady to maintain that specific vibration. Our chops have to be static in a sense, not like firm, like you're holding a cal, you know, like, like you're, like you're uh, lifting something heavy, like, uh, like, but you need to create an environment where you can have that, that static uh, vibration. And, you know, you need to have the sound in your mind, all these things, but it's like, we can make the trumpet easy to play, or we can make it hard to play. And generally speaking, most of us make it hard to play. And all it, all, all you got to do is watch a, a video of, of, of Wayne Bergeron or someone, you know, whomever just like, nailing something that's seemingly impossible and it doesn't look like they're about to die. It looks like they're enjoying themselves. <laughs> and you look at it, it's like, man, what are they doing? Like, no, it, there's no like giant difference between any of us physiologically. It's not like the difference between you and me and, and, and like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was competing, uh, you know, for uh, Mr. Universe or whatever, right? It's not like, it's not like, uh, the greatest players have these big masses of, of muscle in their face. They've like, you know, genetically modified with, with steroids <laughs> and all this. Yeah. That's not what it is. And that's not what is giving them endurance or, or all of their ability. Um, they've just figured out how to do everything more efficiently with, with less effort. And, you know, if, if you or I played with the same efficiency as, as uh, an efficiency can be like a, I think a trigger word for some people in the trumpet world. I think about it as balanced. Yeah, if you can play as, if we could play as balanced as say the people that I've mentioned, uh, we we would uh, play a lot closer to them. And if yeah. we played using as much energy and, and effort and working against ourselves as, as a beginner, um, even after having you know played and practiced for years and develop, de developed our craft, uh, we'd still get worn out and, 35 minutes because we would have expelled all of our energy. Yeah. I mean, if you think about this from, I like to, I like to do workout analogies because there's so much more to me tangible. If, if I watch right now, the world record for a deadlift is 1,104 pounds by half Thor Bjornsson who played the mountain in game of Thrones for anybody who this guy has set the world record. There's a bit of controversy around that, but it doesn't matter. Um, 
And so essentially, I cannot lift that much weight. But is there a weight that I can lift with the same like form, technique, whatever, speed, all those kinds of things? Is there a weight I can lift with his, with like the same principles essentially? And then say like, okay, like the question is not now, how do I lift it properly? The question is, how do I progress to 1,104 pounds? But I needed to figure out how to lift it properly first. And I don't think that means perfectly every single time. I think it means using the right muscles, making sure you're not, because if you overreach, this is how injuries happen. I've done some research into this. Injuries happen not through doing, it's just you're asking the, the mechanism to do more than it can, essentially. It's not like anything is inherently injury uh, risk. Like a deadlift is not inherently something that will give you an injury. But if you try to lift too much for what your lower back can do, you might injure your lower back or your hamstrings. If they're too tight, you might pull a hamstring. People pull biceps and stuff like that, right? So putting it back into the context, sorry, this is a bit of a ramble. Putting it no, back I into the context it, of music, it's the same thing to me. Basically, if we can try to figure out how to play with the same kind of balance Hokan plays in, but like on an easy Arben exercise, then we're like, okay, we have found somewhere we can play like Hokan Hardenberger. Now the question is, how do we progress in difficulty while maintaining that level of balance? Not like, I'm going to try to accomplish what Hokan's doing right now, fail all the time, and assume someday it's just going to figure itself out. I think that's a recipe for never figuring it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's starting with one note, moving to a second note, right? Moving to a third note and just making sure that um, you're doing things as, you know, with as much balance, with as much control. And, you know, whether it's an easy exercise, whether it's an easy exercise or a difficult exercise, um, you know, every time we play, we're like programming ourselves. You know, we're learning what it is to play the trumpet, we're reinforcing and 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 constantly just like re re. Well, we're we're just constantly reinforcing what we had been doing, so that it becomes more of a uh, reflex moving forward. You know, it's like when you're in the moment, you're sight reading, or you're you're relying on reflexes. You know, we're relying on what we've put in the bank, what we've practiced previously, and and what feels normal to us. And to me, that's what practice is about, you know, making sure that that we're developing everything the best that we can. So when we're put into a, a live musical situation, that we can focus on the music and let everything else work the way it's supposed to. Do you struggle with nerves in these in these situations where you're in a new place and possibly playing new music? Do you struggle with nerves or do you find yourself able to manage? Um I have in the past. Uh, generally speaking, um, I haven't been recently. Um, I mean, the, I I'm always like excited and anxious, and I always want to play well. And some of it could be circumstantial, like depending on where or who we're playing or who we're playing for. Where you know, if I let if I think about it, I'm like, oh, like I you know, I want to sound good. Not that I don't expect to always sound good, but it's like all of us can can kind of like get in our minds and uh you know sometimes we're we're in those situations where um that's going to that's going to pop up however for me it's like the more the more i focus on the music uh you know any situation like that what i try and do now is you know just focus more 
on the music, quit thinking about like your, you know, what's in your mind. Listen more carefully. You know, listen, listen to the piano more, listen to the bass more. Try and communicate better with your fellow musicians. Cause if you're doing that, then you're not worrying. You know, it's like, and I, I don't, I want to be present with what I'm playing. That's really, I guess, what's, what's helped me the most as far as, as far as maybe nerves is like trying to be present with my playing because then I, I, I don't have the mental bandwidth to really focus about anything else. You know, it's, I'm not in analysis mode and, yeah. you know, then I guess just like coming to the realization that like, even if you're in analysis mode, um, once something happens, like there's nothing you can do about it. It's already happened. Like what's going to happen? It happened. Like you can't take the note back. You can't fix the note. And uh, generally speaking, like no one knows whether you made it an error or not. No one has the score. Uh, you know, it's like we we make up all of these things in our mind, I feel. And uh, it's just one of one of the ways that we kind of work against ourselves. Yeah, I find music to be a difficult thing in that regard where so much of what we do is subjective. And when we're trying to track we want to call it progress and it's in such a subjective metric you know what i'm saying like how do you determine if you're progressing in terms of your ability to make music i mean something like missing notes is easier to track you know what i mean so that might be why we focus on those kinds yeah. of things that i and, miss yeah sorry yeah and i feel like that's why so many people though like get caught up about like getting nervous or this like because the metric i mean in your in your development of playing music and learning to play the trumpet, uh, like how many times were you told by a teacher that that you missed a note or that you know you missed a rhythm or something, versus how many times were you told that? Excuse me. Versus how many times were you told that your musical intent wasn't there? You know yeah. that what you were playing just wasn't. You know it was it was rhythmically and and uh, pitch accurate, but it was musically lacking. And for me, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, people don't get moved by accuracy. People get moved by music. And they're going to listen to the music. And, you know, if you can play with a musical voice that is so strong that you can grab onto someone and take them along, then... Um, there are no errors, you know, like when you, when you hit a wrong note, like if you chip a note or you do something, whatever, some of my favorite albums, you know, have quote unquote mistakes in them. Yeah. But they are so musical and they're moving and they're moving. And it's like, you listen to that and you're like, you know, it, it took a long time for me to, I think some of that is just like us as musicians. It's like, we are trained to really focus on accuracy and we're trained to focus on getting things right, you know, playing correctly. And some of that just has to do with like competitions and with school and grading and juries. And it's like, um, but you know, it just makes me think of like, I, I think it was, man, it was years and years ago, but I've heard him repeated a few times. Mark Gould, you know, it's like, I've heard him mention that when he was looking for uh, students to accept to Juilliard that he's like, I just want to hear a melody. He's like, <laughs> you know, I don't, he, he's like, I can teach you how to play, you know, summarizing. He basically was like, I can teach you how to play the trumpet, but like, I need that, that voice to be there. Like I, you know, I, 
I want to hear something musical. I want to hear a, me a melody. And I feel like that's just not how most of us are taught. And because of that, that becomes the focus. And then since that's the focus, that like turns into worry and that turns, in, turns into, uh, you know, us getting nervous in performances. And I would say I've struggled too with being musically illiterate in my life, right? Like that, that can be remedied by like, you know, listening and studying scores and all that kind of stuff. And maybe there have been times where I haven't done my due diligence in that regard. So then I step into a situation and the only thing that I, I know that can determine if I have done well or not is how close to technical perfection can I get? Because I don't like, you know, we were talking about it's like a metric for that. And, you know, I think the pursuit of technical excellence is a necessary pursuit of what we, of what we do, but you're, you're right. I think we can sometimes get stuck on that side as a way to, because it's a little bit more objective about whether we're progressing or not. And yeah. I just think one of the worst things about playing an instrument is like sometimes it can just be hard to see if you're like in the gym, I lifted five more pounds, 10 more pounds, 15. Like you can see the progress so much more objectively that it can become like, I've been playing for a year, like, or I've been doing this for a year or whatever. Am I any better <laughs> one year later? Like, does this work even matter? I think sometimes that can be, uh, demoralizing a little bit to wonder, like, does have you done any good work for a period of time when we have no metric for checking if we've gotten better? Yeah, definitely. It's like when you're lifting, you can feel you can you have that metric that you can follow, and it's so much more difficult with music, where it can be challenging to really, you know, know how you're how you're growing, you know, and how you're developing which maybe that's why so many people really focus on like, you know, the pitch and rhythm and what, and I mean, all these things that we need and they have to be there. And, but it's like technical ability is, is just that, you know, it's like technical ability. I, I just really, uh, you know, come from wanting to make sure that I've got that technical ability kind of in the can so that when I need to call on it, it's there. And uh, it's, that's been a struggle for me though, as well. It's like, you want to, you want to see that progress. You want to know that what you're doing every day is like actually getting you to go forward and that you're like doing, you know, it's like recording yourself and listening over and over, you know, playing through etudes, like working on, working on new things. It's like, those are ways that we can determine that we're, that we're growing, but uh, it's not as, as straightforward as, I say going to the gym or, or like running a mile and, and timing yourself and then seeing that you've, you've shaved six seconds off and that you've shaved, you know, three seconds off and that you feel better about it. Yeah. And so I've, in my work, I've tried to steal as many of those objective metrics and try to bring them into, you know, what we do. And uh, I mean, that's for a different podcast episode, but yeah, it's just, to me, it's a fascinating conversation. The whole idea of consistency, the whole idea of why do we do the work that we're doing. Cause sometimes I think I've certainly struggled with this. And I think a lot of people can struggle with, I'm just showing up and sort of going through the motions, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like I know I'm supposed to do this. Everyone tells me I got to practice a lot, but I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm actually trying to accomplish with this work. I'm just told that if I do it, I'll get better. And I, that's one of the big conversations I, I just would I just like to have in general and see what people think about that. And it seems like you have some some uh, really yeah I guess good well, perspective on it. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I've, I've always been inquisitive, like with all my teachers and it's like, okay, practice this. And it's like, okay, but why am I practicing this? Like, you know, what am I trying to, what's the end goal? Like, what am I trying to learn and achieve from this? Playing through, you know, the Biche Tudes, for instance, I love the Biche Tudes. Um, those are all really uh, quite challenging. Most of them are, are a good challenge to play and to play them well and to, you know, be able to feel like uh, you're in control and you're playing it musically. Uh, most most people, I think, may not ever get past uh, thinking about them in a technical sense, just because they can be so challenging technically. Yeah. And there's wide intervals, and there are uh, tricky rhythms and and pretty good range. You know, low Gs, F sharps, and some of them up to a high Cs or or Ds, and the purpose of playing a beach etude for me, it's it's not like, oh, I'm gonna play this so that I can get all the notes, like so I can like play it accurately or play it correctly. Um, the first challenge for me is okay, I'm gonna play through this and and assess technically what I can or cannot do, and then what I need to develop in order to be able to play it technically. But then once I feel comfortable with it, it's like okay. How do I take this this you know uh, abstract sounding uh, piece? A lot of people may not think they're necessarily the most uh, um, you know tuneful or musical uh, pieces out there. They are, I think, if you, you know if you put it into it. But it's like, how do I take this this piece that can really sound very challenging and and you know technical, and how do I turn that into something that's musical? And for me there was a really big light bulb that went off when I studied with Michael Sachs and I worked on some Biche tubes with him. And it was just like from the first measure, from the first like two measures, like his approach, it was just so radically different than my approach from when he played it. He just started playing something and I was just like, oh, wait a minute. Like I could tell from that first note that the first thing he had in mind was musical phrasing. Like, how do, how, do I, how do I take this line and make it a musical phrase regardless of what is included in that line, right? Versus, okay, I need to play these really wide intervals. I need to play this really challenging, you know, articulation thing, you know. That was beyond, you know, that was behind him a long time ago. And he was looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to just like play this, this so musically. And what I realized was that because of how he was approaching it musically, it, it had an effect on the technique on like, you know, what and how he was approaching it technically. And that's an end goal that I immediately knew that I would never reach if I was approaching it from a technical standpoint yeah, right. to begin with. If I approached it technically to begin with, it is only ever going to be technical. But if I approached it musically, then, you know, and, and, and because some of these technical etudes are, you know, they're, like I said, they're so challenging. We want to approach them with our, you know, kind of like our thinking cap, our technical cap on. And it's like, okay, how do I play this, this tricky uh, tonguing exercise or slur exercise or whatnot? And, at, if we approach it like that, that's what we're only ever going to get out of it. 
And that's why so many people are flocking to uh, uh, these recordings that uh, Hoken Hardenberger has been posting on YouTube of, yeah. of the Charlie A etudes. Because, you know, you you listen to them and your just jaw drops on the floor because it makes you realize that that you've been practicing some of these from a technical standpoint and that you didn't get to that musical you know, uh, direction. Like you didn't, it wasn't music forward. Uh, you know, it wasn't music first. And uh, that's challenging because the trumpet is a hard instrument. It's not like piano. We can't just, you know, count on every note being there and being in tune and being good every day. We're forced to spend a lot of time to really focus and think about our technique, which makes it difficult for us to shift those gears sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a biggie with, uh, with studying with sax and like, you know, kind of getting me to think about approaching music differently and the impact that, you know, how you thought about something uh, had on the technique even. So using those Hokan recordings as an example, because I, I totally agree with you. Obviously, many people do. Um, what I found to be interesting is he was just interpreting them in ways that I had not really considered that you would do it like it's you know kind of like weird like he was just playing them and I was like I would never think to do that you know I would never think to do certain things that way so part of the problem that I feel like I've experienced is playing in sort of an orchestral tradition there are levels of this is how you do it right and so for me to hear him do that is like I'm gonna have to reframe the way I think about some of this stuff uh, separate from how I've thought about it to develop a level of being able to play orchestrally something because that level of music making is different. I think you don't have that same kind of flexibility and freedom that he displayed it. And I think people like I would play Charlier's like an orchestrally orchestral musician. So sort of like the presentation of sound is part of the whole thing, you know, and sort of the time rhythm, like, that all needs to be there and be stable and all that kind of stuff. And he just plays with it so much more. Yeah. And that's, so, yeah, that was interesting for you. I totally agree with you. And yeah. it had that's like how it worked for me. It's just like I have to reframe and just step outside of. So that's my question for you is how when you heard Sax do this thing that was outside of what you had previously considered, what does it look like for you to move more in that direction and in like a way that you can sort of tangibly say, I am moving in that direction to be more yeah. musical? Well, for me, it was just realizing that I was approaching it from the way that I was, where it was so, you know, I was, I was still, you know, I was just out of college. I was just out of my master's and I still was kind of like in the mode of, okay, I'm going to really go for accuracy and I'm going to go for, like, these were just the things that I was thinking about the most. I was thinking about my sound. I was thinking about, uh, just having a, a even and, and great attack, you know, from the beginning to the end, and just all of the all of the things that I had been focused on in school, just with playing the trumpet better. It's like, okay, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to play this. I'm going to really nail it, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to play this piece. <laughs> and sure, I was pl trying to play it musically, right? If, however, I I kind of just missed a lot of it because I was too focused on like the minutia, you know, I was too focused on like the, on like the little bits to see the big bits, you know, I was too focused on small individual pieces to necessarily see bigger 
trends and bigger phrases. And because I was focused on, you know, certain uh, um, rhythmic components or, or whatnot, I was being too rigid and I wasn't allowing it to really flow and breathe as much as it could. And that was like one of the big things like with Zax, like he started playing something and he was just like adding all this great rubato and just like shaping the ends of phrases and doing all these things. And I was like, well, it's not written in the part yeah, like, like that. Who told you you could do that? <laughs> who told you to do that? But then I listened to it and it's like, I never want to play it any other way. Yeah, like yeah. that is just so beautiful. And that was just like, you know, for me, it was just like a big light bulb. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Like there's a whole lot of missing here. And, you know, I've got, if I'm, if I'm only, again, like if I'm only ever going to think and approach these with, with my little, you know, uh, technical, uh, uh, slash, uh, accurate hat or whatever on, like if I approach it from, from that analytical side, then that may be all I ever get. And I didn't want that. You know, it's like, and I don't want that. It's like, I want to, I want to think of it differently. And, uh, you know, that, that really got me to evaluate a lot of what I was practicing. And, you know, for someone like, like Sachs, like that's something that he does, um, on purpose. Like he, like, if you've ever heard him give master classes or, or discuss audition preparation, he will talk about excerpts and preparing orchestral pieces in so many different ways. He's like, okay, I'm gonna play it at this tempo. I'm gonna play it at a faster tempo, at a slower tempo. I'm gonna play it as though it were this. I'm gonna play it in this style. And I remember him asking me to play some of these excerpts or, or you know, etudes like, in different styles. He's like, play it in a jazz style, play it in this style, play it in that style. Because for him, you know, he's on the other end of, of the baton uh, from, you know, he's, he's, he has to try and, and uh, realize the vision of the conductor, you know, whoever is, is musically directing the group. And he's going to play it and prepare and practice it the way that he feels it, you know, resonates with him, but he's very, cognizant that people are going to show up and they're going to want something different. And because of that, he practices all of his music, like in such a varying ways so that, you know, if someone shows up and wants it different, it's not suddenly like, oh, wow, how do I do that? It's like, yeah. he's already prepared himself for that. And I feel like, um, you know, that's, that's what he was doing with, with those etudes. Like I looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, I had never considered that. And and it's just because he had he had considered so many different musical alternatives, and uh, it really got me thinking. It's like, oh wait a minute, like I I have the ability to do that as well. Like we all have. Like, but you know, we were never told necessarily. Uh, but once you realize that that all of those options are there, it's like, oh well, let's really explore and see what we can unearth. Yeah, like you said, I like you summed it up really nicely there at the end. It's like when you accept the idea that it could be a different way, then you're left with like, well, how do we start finding that? And I think makes me start to listen to others in a different way, you know? And I think there should be um, a willingness to to do that. It can just be hard when you have, at least like when you're someone like me, when you had such a singular goal 
of I need to win an audition. It's hard to to see outside. You know what I mean? It's hard to branch out. So the last question I have in this regard, and I think we should uh, sort of shift in some of the YouTube stuff because I, I think this is going to be a good conversation too. But um, do you feel like you described yourself when you were in school and you were trying to nail it and you're trying to get all the right stuff, but then you heard sex. Like, do you feel that the what you were trying to do in school prepared you so you could start asking those other questions? Or do you wish that you would have been asking those questions that you learned with sex sooner? Does that question, does that make sense? Um, well, I think that what I got from my teachers when I got it was was probably what I needed. Yeah. And I remember with Sachs, for instance, um, so he was like the most recent person that I've, you know, really studied with uh, in a major way. And I remember working on him with articulations and I remember working on him with C trumpet. And those were things that I thought he could help me with and that I was having, you know, struggles with. And he told me more or less what Roy had told me, what Terry had told me. Uh, but he told me in a way that it, you know, it clicked then at that point. And I feel like I was, I was getting this information. I was being told it. Um, I'm not going to say one way or another, whether I was told it in the, in the right way or versus whether I was ready to, you know, accept and implement it at that time with my playing. Um, but I remember, you know, Sax saying something and be like, oh, that's what Roy meant. Like when he was saying this, like, oh, this is what Terry was talking about. It's like, oh yeah, like this is, this is all, you know, kind of coming together. I think I was just, you know, I was pretty, uh, anyone entering college, like you, yeah, you need a lot of work. And uh, I, I think, think to, because- Go ahead, sorry, sorry, I didn't- Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I think because at least in my undergraduate, because I was doing the classical and jazz program. Uh, for me, it was really a challenge to get my my chops kind of put together because um, I was pretty spread thin and it was difficult to really like implement a lot of new changes as quickly, I think, as Roy probably wanted me to uh, because I was playing lead trumpet in the big band because I was doing these things that were kind of counterproductive to how he was trying to help me build my chops uh, and, and create that foundation. But I think at the time, uh, you know, that everyone gave me like great, you know, they gave me the right information. They get, But it's like, you just gotta live with it. You gotta process it and you gotta find out a way to take that information and make it um, your own and like work for exactly what you're trying to do. No, I think that's a great answer. And I, I think, my, my original question was a little vague, so I'll sort of expand upon it with this idea. Like right now, I feel like I'm I'm starting to realize I don't play as musically as I would like. Right? I don't say I'm playing a musically, but what we just described, what we just described with the Hokan videos, and I think what I, I guess more or less what I was asking is like I feel like it would be easy to beat myself up and then, and feel like ah, I should have been should have been doing this all along and I've just like wasted all this time. But also I think a lot of what I was thinking about when I was not thinking about necessarily musicality brought me to this place where I could start asking these questions. Like we talked about with more consistency and more availability. And I do think in some fashion, it's acceptable to sort of like 
sort of focus in an area for a while and say like, I'm really interested in figuring out my articulation. Like if I don't play the most musically I've ever played in my life while I'm figuring this out, it's okay because we're building this sort of long-term thing. And just sort of what I meant to be asking, I suppose, is just, and it sounds like not, just this idea that I can think, I think it'd be easy to judge ourselves for all the things we learned that we feel like we should have been doing all along that seems so basic that maybe, like you said, We've even been told multiple times, but like, I think it's acceptable that we focus on the things that we focus on when we're focusing on them. And that's just our path. It's not like a coulda, woulda, shoulda. That's just how it yeah. worked out. Definitely. Yeah, no, I'll agree that we have like different, at least I can agree that I had different times that I focused on different things. And when I really think of it, it's like going into college, I think I was, I think I was playing more musically before I attend, before I got to college, than when I got to college, and that's because it was, you know, it was like I had this this passion. I was practicing, and I, you know, I played that Car Arbenz Carnival of Venice, and and then I started working on all of the solos out of that Carnival book, and you know, all these. I was just like having a blast. I was having fun. And I was like <laughs> working on everything, and I wasn't all that focused on on chops or technique or any of these things. And that's, well, I had holes in my playing, you know? Right. And, but I was focused like 100% on like, you know, just like playing musically. And I feel like that's probably what got me into college. And then I got to college and then that same focus that I had that I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn all these pieces, like that shifted. And it's like, oh, I have to work on my stamp. I have to work on my technique. You know, I have to work on, being able to play um, a low F sharp and have it sound nice and full and, and beautiful, yeah. just like an F sharp in the staff, just like a high C or a D or an E. And like that focus, it shifted. And I think it needed to shift. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think the the tricky thing for so many then is going to be how do you, how do you uh, take care of business and then get back to music making, you know, yep. and really focus 100% on that. Yeah, no, I that's that's I like the way you said that. I think I think that's part of balance. That's like a big, you know, we talked about balance in our own playing in a sort of a small, you know, uh, version of it, but I think generally speaking, this is like sort of a wider picture of what balance looks like. It's being able to make sure you know, Barbara Butler's all about this kind of stuff. We're not getting too far away from the things we need to work on. And musicality, in my opinion, is like one of the bricks that make great yeah. musicians. Yeah. Like Jacob Collier, you know, you watch that dude play and like he's doing crazy things, but his technique allows him to have access to, I can play anything that I hear in my head. Yeah. And he, yeah. And he can, he can play anything that we can't hear. Yeah, seriously. It's, <laughs> talk about, yeah. Um, that's another conversation. Though. Yeah. Um, let's dive into the YouTube stuff. I think I'd love to have this conversation yeah. with you, get your perspective. The easiest way to start would just be like, how long have you been doing it? Why'd you start your channel? Um, like, what do you, you know, what, who is it for? What are you trying to, uh, what those kinds of things? We should talk about this project you just started recently because I think it's a pretty cool idea and I'd love for you to have a chance to talk about that too. Great. Uh, so with YouTube, I really kind of dove in uh, to the deep end of, of YouTube as a creator um, this last summer, uh, the end of July. And that was after a long period of me being like a, a, uh, a heavy, uh, 
YouTube content uh, consumer, and I still am. You know, I I think I spend more time watching videos and finding videos on YouTube than probably any other uh, you know social network or or oftentimes even television. It's like I'm going to go to YouTube because there's a lot of people that I follow, and I love the ecosystem, and I just love that basically you can find anything there. You know, I mentioned before, it's like you find all these great recordings and videos of, of our heroes. But also, if you're trying to fix something, if you're trying to do something, it's like that's where you go. And because so I kind of was like, you know, a, a you like a YouTuber wannabe, right? Just like every kid these days. Apparently there was a survey that someone did recently where where they asked kids what they wanted to be when they grew up. And one of the top answers was a YouTuber. <laughs> and uh, I think now uh, it, it is also like a TikToker, you know? It's wow. like, but this is something that a lot of kids really want. And which is like a whole, whole new, th- whole, whole other thing, whole new world. But for me, like I've kind of like, for a couple of years now, like been like, ah, I want to like get into YouTube. I want to do that. But I never, I guess, really felt confident in it or, or comfortable or maybe also didn't have the time to learn and realize what I was trying to achieve. Uh, but once this whole pandemic hit and, and, you know, lockdown and we're suddenly with a lot of time on our hands and a lot of us are rethinking what it is and, and had been and will be uh, to be a, a professional musician and what the musical landscape is going to look like on the way out coming out of this on the other end, because, uh, you know, the world that we lived in previously is it's, that's not going to come back at all. I mean, we may, you know, we're going to get back to normal air quotes again. And as as far as people won't be wearing masks and we're going to be vaccinated and we're going to be, you know, free to do what it is that we want. However, it's been such a radical shift in how people operate their day-to-day lives and how they learn and how they, you know, uh, kind of uh, seek out information. And when I first moved to Chicago, so I live in Chicago. And when I first moved to Chicago, like seven something years ago, I was, uh, you know, coming into a city, I didn't have that many connections and I didn't have any students. And back in Ohio, I had 40 students. And I remember letting them all know I'm moving. And I tried to get as many of them to transition to Skype lessons as I could because, you know, I wanted to keep working with them. Some of them I had been working with a number of years. And also I didn't want to be moving to a new city with like zero income, right? It's like, okay, how do I maintain as many of my students in my studio as possible? And it was a hard sell. You know, seven years ago, it was a very hard sell to get people to do Skype lessons. And I think I ended up with like 11 out of 40 at the beginning. And then it kind of, uh, you know, dwindled uh, over time. And now that's totally different. Like right. now, like trying to convince a parent that online learning is, uh, is a reasonable and realistic thing. Like you don't have to have that conversation. They know that you can do it and they know their kid can do it and that it can work. So, you know, moving forward, it's like everything is so different. And so I really looked at YouTube as like, okay, I want to get in and, you know, uh, kind of put, you know, use it as a tool to put myself out there further. 
And uh, there were certain, certain uh, you know, creators that I've seen that, that inspired me to, to create. And then there were certain things that I may have seen where I was like, okay, well, I, I want to put an alternative viewpoint to, to this out on the internet for people to see. And when I first got into YouTube, I was looking at and got into YouTube series because uh, I've had my channel for years. But like this past summer, I looked at all my past videos that I had uploaded, which is only a small handful. And I looked and I saw, okay, what's really doing really well? What are people searching for? What are they interested in? And I use that kind of like as my guide. And I've had a long interest in trumpet mutes, um, which I guess drove me to create this weekly series that I called Mute Monday. And that was after like a long period where I was buying a lot of trumpet mutes off of eBay, you know, from everywhere. And it's because I had a weekly gig every Thursday in uh, Evanston. I was playing a jazz trio gig and it was in a restaurant and, you know, we were kind of background music, but we were, we were present, but it wasn't like so present that I could have played with a open trumpet. You know, I played muted the whole time mm -hmm. and I played into a mic muted and I was just like, I don't, this isn't the sound I want. Like this isn't the sound that I had in my head for miles, you know, with the Hartman mute. This isn't the sound I had in my head, like from Dizzy, like this. And now we were playing a lot of bebop on those gigs. So it's like, this isn't what I wanted. So I just started buying more mutes and more mutes. And suddenly I had like 10 different Harmon mutes. And suddenly I had 15 different Harmon mutes. And suddenly I had, you know, a hundred mutes total. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, let's do something with all these. And then it just kind of like, uh, you know, snowballed from there. And I started making these really very detailed, uh, you know, comparison review videos about trumpet mutes where I discuss the company and the history and then I play it and I compare it with other mutes. And that kind of took off so that then mute companies were contacting me and saying, hey, can I send you this mute? And some of them I reached out to and I was like, hey, you know, I've got these two of your mutes. I'd love to be able to compare all of them. And, you know, like I got a lot of mutes in the mail and, and then suddenly I've got this great weekly series and pretty soon I realized it's like, okay, I don't want to only be like known as the mute guy because <laughs> I do play the trumpet. You know, it's like I tour, I teach, um, I have a, uh, a duet book that I wrote, uh, we released two years ago with, uh, Roger Ingram, uh, jazz duets. And it's like, okay, I need to do other things as well. So getting into teaching, you know, and, and doing kind of like tutorial videos where I discuss, you know, some of the topics that we've discussed in this podcast and, you know, discuss uh, different ideas that are not too specific. You know, it's like pretty general that I feel will help most players that encounter it, you know, that they can get, take something away from it. I, I've been trying to avoid specific topics that can be, uh, uh, really player specific and like a little too uh, pointed because uh, I feel like that might do a little more harm than good. Uh, you know, some things are best, just you want to work one-on-one -on -one with someone. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but so I just took my, my YouTube series and just, uh, you know, started uh, trying to grow and I really kind of dove in deep as far as learning YouTube and, and uh, 
I guess I will preface this with like all along, at least for the last eight years or so, I've had a, a pretty big interest in photography. And uh, because of that, I've got a good amount of gear. And while I've been on the road for the last number of years with Under the Street Lamp, um, I've also been like kind of in-house like photo video guy. And I do video editing and I do, I actually shoot live while we play. Um, I set up my camera in different spots and use a wireless uh, uh, receiver and I can actually frame and see the shots and, and take, cause I've got the whole book memorized. <laughs> and so I'll have my phone on stage often where it'll be on the stand and it shows me a live view of the camera. And then I can frame it up for the singers so that I know their choreography, where they're gonna be and I get shots and then we can share it all online. Um, obviously like if, if you don't have the show memorized and you're not, it's a little bit like, more that's difficult. gonna be <laughs> real challenging. Uh, and it's challenging nonetheless. But you know, once you've played the same show a hundred plus times and uh, yeah. you know, it's like not, you, you know, when you've got a, a couple seconds to be able to, you know, tap on the screen a few times and get sure. a shot. Yeah. And so, over the years, I've been accumulating all of this extra gear. And, you know, it was just kind of like perfectly set up that I could dive into YouTube and and finally do what I wanted with the quality that I wanted, you know, the production quality. And, and I felt, you know, comfortable uh, with editing and, and knowing how to put it all together. And I've certainly learned um, a lot because I've posted, I think maybe 60 videos since then. Um, and, uh, you know, every single one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm learning new tricks and I'm, and I'm still kind of like dialing it all in. Now, you mentioned uh, a new series that I just launched. And that is something that I actually had in mind for like a handful of years now. And I originally wanted to film it in person. And basically the idea is that I interviewed a, uh, I interviewed a group of trumpet players uh, 17 different trumpeters. And I asked all of them the exact same question. And what I've done now is I've chopped up all those interviews into the individual questions. And I'm creating a series of, of videos where each video is one question, which is then answered in sequence by all 17 trumpet players. So, you know, the first video was launched uh, like uh, maybe three weeks ago almost. And that was, the question was, what does your typical practice day look like? And does that differ from an ideal practice day? And then the video that was just launched a few days ago was uh, who was your most influential teacher and why? So it's like really trying to dive in and understand these, these trumpeters better. And next week's is, you know, uh, what do you do to recover after a hard gig? So like some of them are, are gonna be more practical advice uh, playing wise, but some of them are really, you know, just more insight into the lives and, and like the journey that these people took to get to where they are right right now. And that, uh, that's been really awesome. I mean, these videos are, are shockingly uh, tedious and time consuming to, <laughs> to edit. I think the first one took me over 50 hours. Yeah, wow. Um, the second one was, was less, maybe like 30. Uh, it's still like a considerable amount of time. Um, and I definitely wouldn't be able to create these if I were still on the road right now. But yeah. I feel like, um, you know, I felt like that was something that I wanted to see that I thought would be really helpful to the trumpet world, to the trumpet community. 
Um, at least that's how I, you know, can really learn. Like when I, when I can see how 10 people do something and they all do it a little bit differently, it's like, I learned from that. And I think it can be reassuring for all of us as well that like, there, it's not just like, there's one way to do it. You know, all of these trumpeters that I've, that I've spoken with in my series have achieved incredible success. And they've all done it a different way. You know, they've all had their own path. And I think that's a very important thing to get out there. Um, you know, and, and one of the future videos is gonna be a question is, uh, you know, what's something that you struggled with and how did you, how did you overcome it? And just to hear like all these, these players talk about something that was difficult for them. It's like, oh, they're not, they're not perfect all the time. Like they're not, you know, uh, just a stack of Grammy awards. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, you know, they're, they're human. They're the same as us. Like they've, they put in the time, they struggled and, and there's things that they, uh, uh, they really had to work hard on. And again, you know, it's just reassuring uh, for all of us who are on that path, you know, if, if we have any doubts or if we're, if we're uh, struggling with something at the time, it's like, oh, I think that these can be really um, helpful videos to the trumpet community. Yeah, that's great. Um... I'm, I'm, uh, it's no secret. I, I've, I've, I've had a lot of questions about struggle and suffering on my podcast over the, over the past however many months. And I, I've come to really uh, understand that the struggle is like what in some ways begins to define us, right? The struggle that we experienced taught us some sort of important lesson. And that lesson is now how we sort of view our work or view ourselves or, or whatever. And so um, I'm kind of curious for you, if you have moments, it could be throughout any part of your career, it could be as a YouTuber, it could be personal life, anything like that. I'm kind of curious uh, for basically to, to turn it right back around what you just were talking about right back around on you. See if you have any moments of struggle that uh, you learned important lessons from and maybe share those with us so we can get some of that perspective. Uh, yeah. Um, well, definitely there's been... Um, plenty of moments of struggle with, with me, like professionally and, you know, even, even in college, like I had a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, it wasn't like a smooth sailing, you know, throughout all my degrees. Like I had some, uh, uh, some challenging, uh, uh, juries that, that I, uh, uh, you know, neat that I had to redo, you know, that like, I just wasn't prepared. Um, at Oberlin, you know, it's like, my first, my first juries at Oberlin were like not happening. And it's because I had a jazz and a classical jury that I had to prepare all at once. And I, d I didn't know how to do all of that, you know, simultaneously. The jazz jury at Oberlin was like, memorize 40 jazz tunes. <laughs> and really, and then they just pick random ones and then you play them. And then the classical one was like, you know, solo, scales excerpts whatever and i just like bombed them it was like i had to you know i had to reschedule them and moving forward you know i ended up then staggering them like different different semesters they they allowed me to do that um you know and then like with my recitals and i mean there was a lot of if i went back there's a lot of things i would have done differently um you know i feel like i I wasn't involved in uh, a lot of uh, 
you know, some of the like communities as much just because I was so spread thin in my undergraduate. Um, you know, it's like the jazz people thought I was a classical guy. The classical guys thought I was a jazz guy. It's like, mm. um, so I would have done some of that differently. And then like the same with, with my, with my grad school, it's like, um, not smooth sailing the whole way through, but you know, I got to the other end and, uh, and I graduated and, and, uh, I'm, I'm playing professionally and, uh, which is, is, uh, non it's, you know, kind of an anomaly with a lot of, uh, music school graduates these days, I think. Um, it's not guaranteed that if you have a music degree and you graduate, that you're going to be working as a musician. You know, a lot of my colleagues have gone on to do other things and they're all very happy and, you know, they're doing what, what, what they, uh, want to do and what, what is fulfilling for them. Um, but it was, you know, there weren't, uh, there weren't very many times in, in my development, uh, for a long time where I really felt like I, I was like, had a handle on things. Like, you know, I was in, I was kind of in control of things and Maybe that's also why, like, my practice is so structured now, uh, you know. And there, sure, sure. And and I think there was a lot of times where um, maybe I didn't have as clear of a goal of what I really wanted, um, which made me feel like I really needed to kind of spread myself really thin and like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a jack of all trades. I'm gonna do everything. And there is a certain point where it's like, okay, wait a minute, I don't need to do everything. And you know what? I'm not really going to do that. Like that doesn't interest me so much. Um, like really finding out what I wanted to do, like what was going to make me happy. Um, I would say like, that's been, that's been a, a, a challenging journey. Um, because it's definitely like what I'm doing now, um, professionally and like musically isn't specifically what I envisioned uh, as yeah. an undergraduate. Um, however, the group that I've been touring with and what I've been doing musically is like been the most musically fulfilling thing that I've done. Um, basically like, uh, throughout my music career. And that was like, that's kind of like, I feel, uh, not specifically what most music schools have, you know, are like selling as the idea of the end end result. Like, you're going to be a classical trumpet player. You're going to be this. It's like, I'm touring with a rock band, but um, we have a blast. And I can say I've never played a classical concert or a jazz concert where I've had the reception from the audience that we get every show that I play uh, with Under the Street Lamp because we're playing their music, 50s, 60s, 70s. And these are old people, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s and and it is just standing ovation, epic applause at the end of every show. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's like, wow, this really resonates with them. Like this moves them. This is like impactful. You know, like we know that we've, that we've made their days better. Like we know that, that we've made them happy. And I can't necessarily say that I've had that experience from 
you know, playing uh, orchestral concerts sure. or these other things. And I've been on the other end of orchestral concerts where I've had that feeling, you know, Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony, you know, you go, I, I challenge anyone to go hear, hear uh, the Cleveland Orchestra play Mahler's Second Symphony and, and not be, uh, you know, moved by the end. Um, but it's just, it's like, it's something different. And it, and it was like, it took me, uh, I guess it took me like a while to really be um, like happy and comfortable about that because it's like, if you really think about like wh what we've been taught over all the years and then you think it's like, oh, like, oh, you're playing with a rock band or, oh, you're doing this. Like, what did you practice all that for? Like, what do you, why, why am I still playing beach? Why am I still doing all these things? And it's like, well, that's, that's what I want. Like, that's what makes me happy. That's how I feel like I can still, if someone called me and said, hey, hey, can you play Soldier's Tale? Or, hey, can you play whatever? It's like, yeah. I can still say yes. Um, but um, playing with this group and playing that type of music and, and the types of gigs that I've been able to play the last, you know, uh, five, six years here in Chicago has really uh, um, been uh, pretty fantastic, even though if it wasn't necessarily uh, where I thought I would be. Well, I think it's worth pointing out too what you described about how you're able to take your photography passion and work that into that opportunity with the rock band that you're doing and obviously the stuff with the videography and being able to move this. It's it. We start to see how it's not just being a musician that is what your life is surrounded by, even though that's a big part of it, but that you are, it sounds like you're a person who has a wide variety of interests and now you have a wide variety of opportunities and things to do in your life, yeah. which I think is very cool. I will add and say though that like the whole photography thing, like that there was an element of strategy involved with uh, with that. When I first started playing with, uh, with Street Lamp, um, I wasn't on the road with them all the time. I was doing like, I was a sub. And then it started being like I was doing their bus tours. And then finally, it started being me being brought along to everything. Uh, but, excuse me. But I used photography and some of these other skills that I had as a way to uh, make my, you know, market myself to them in a way that made me more valuable to them. And it's not that my trumpet playing wasn't valuable to them, but the fact that the trumpet book is uh, for Under the Street Lamp is challenging. It's it's a lead book. It's hard. It requires a, a lot of accuracy and a lot of endurance. And um, but it's not impossible. It's not like there aren't excellent lead players out there that could play it. And um, there's a lot of cities they can get to where they can hire someone locally that's going to just really do a fantastic job. Um, of course, it's always better to have someone that has the book memorized that knows everything so well. But when you're running a band and you know you have all these considerations, like bringing one more person on the road is is more plane tickets, it's more hotel rooms, it's you know it's maybe they have to rent another van because they don't have enough room in the one. Like there's a lot of logistical considerations. So. Um, I was strategic in the sense of, of using uh, uh, photography and um, you know other skills that I had. I arrange for them now. 
Um, I was helping with, with uh, video production, you know, some of the social media uh, strategic things. So like I, these were all interests that I had, but it was also like, okay, well, how can I use these talents and skills that I have in a way that is going to then uh, make them say, oh, wait a minute, like we really need Josh, like for every gig, we need to bring him around. Yeah, that's awesome. Like for every show, because when we need to do little promo reels to send to theaters, like he can film them for us and edit. And when we need new new uh, pictures for Instagram and Facebook, like, oh, he's taking them every night. But I was, so I had, but I had that, you know, uh, interest to begin with. And I was on the road and for me, it was just documenting through my Instagram and Facebook, like, hey, like I'm excited to be on the road. I'm traveling to these new cities, check out these cool photos. And it really was like, once I saw that they started sharing them and then they were like, oh, can, can we use that photo? Can we use this photo? Then it was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's see uh, uh, what else I can do. Yeah, you're, I mean, I, I think this is a great example of this. You're just thinking win-win, right? Like yeah, they yeah. need that thing. You're enjoying doing it. It benefits every party to have, have a deal like that. You know, I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, smart, and I was going to... I was going to take the pictures anyway, but it did definitely involve in, it did it did evolve into me uh, taking more um, you know specific photos of you know setting it up in a way that was going to capture the singers uh, for certain things and and uh, you know obviously like if I'm filming a, a like a sizzle reel or something during soundcheck or or demos for new songs that we're doing which which I've done then it's like that is like an additional that's like oh that's that's a, not something that i had planned in mind that i would have done for myself sure. but it's not a stretch and if that's you know the skill set that i have and then i can make myself i think it's a valuable lesson for anyone it's like if you can make yourself you know more valuable and and uh more of an asset to whatever group that you're playing with then obviously they're gonna want you to be around more yeah this has been great, man. Yeah, I feel like I ramble a lot. So I no, it's, and, uh, it's like that's why that's why I like the podcast medium. You know, we just I think people hopefully just settle in. You know what I mean? That's great. Yeah. Um, if Can people add, go ahead. Oh, sorry. If I if I could add one more yeah, thing, yeah, of course. Um, I will add. So just as I was being strategic with with uh, Street Lamp and my photography and everything that I do. Um, I do have the same approach with YouTube. Like, you know, I I do have strategic ends and you know and goals in mind uh, with I with what I've been creating and like with what I'm creating now and how I can hopefully use and leverage that to get me to where I want to be because I feel like in today's day and age and this is to reference earlier in the conversation where I where I said the landscape of of the musical world and the world in general is going to be different coming out of this pandemic as it was going into it. And, uh, you know, with online learning and, and all these, uh, all these things, it's like the music world today is, is, is also quite different than all of them, than all of, than what a lot of the music schools, uh, kind of, I think, uh, are promising to their students. Sure. Um, there's not as many orchestra gigs. There's not as many touring gigs. There's not as many jazz gigs. There's not as many, whatever. And I feel like it's particularly important uh, to be industrious and to really 
you know, make and create your own scene. And so for me, a lot, you know, I've had my own website for a very, very, very long time, uh, 20 years, you know, and I've had um, for a long time, just like this idea in my mind that like, I'm going to be like uh, uh, industrious for myself. It's like, you know, you don't want to wait for someone else to call. Otherwise you may be waiting all day. All right. like you can use your time uh, well and you can create opportunities for yourself. So that's kind of like the approach that I'm taking with YouTube and trying to just get myself out there more and more, hopefully help the trumpet community as much as I can. Because, you know, obviously the more you help others, um, then uh, I find that the more it ends up helping you. Um, but definitely it's like, as time goes on, I feel like it's going to become a more and more uh, like a important part of, of what I'm doing, just because that is where I see the musical landscape moving. And, you know, yeah. really having a digital presence um, and putting yourself out there, I find is, uh, is going to be something that's extremely uh, necessary, uh, even if a lot of music schools still uh, look at marketing or promotion as a four-letter word. <laughs> I think it's a great perspective. I mean, obviously, I'm starting in on the whole YouTube thing, too, and just trying to share some ideas about things I think are important for the same exact reason. Hopefully, people can connect with it. And I think the more you're able to sort of define what it is that you do and and what you sort of stand for, you can then start to build that community of people who also... Uh, care about those types of things as well. And I think, you know, the more community we have, I think the better. That's one of the things you like lose from yes, music absolutely. school is you lose that community. So um, if people are interested, just being a, being a part of what your community is, checking you out, where can people find you? All right. So um, basically anywhere on the internet, uh, I'm just <laughs> at Josh Rezepka, uh, J-O-S-H-R-Z-E-P-K-A. Uh, YouTube is uh, Josh Rizepka Music. Um, but if you just type my name into YouTube, or I bet if you just type Trumpet Mute into YouTube, you'll probably <laughs> find my channel. Um, that's that's one of the benefits of having a, uh, a relatively uh, a unique last name is that uh, there's not, I, to my knowledge, any other Josh Rizepka trumpeters out there. Yeah. Um, there are a couple other Josh Rizepkas out there, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, that's uh that that's uh the best way to find me, joshrazepka.com. And uh, you know, you can find links to everything. Yeah. So I mean, check out his stuff. I mean, like he was saying, it's it's not just I mean, the mute stuff is great, but you've also placed, posted playing videos, multi-track stuff of you and obviously this this huge project you're putting together um for the trumpet community and all musicians in general. I mean, whether you're a trumpet player or not, I feel like this listening to pros talk about what they're talking about, I think could be valuable. So that's where you can check all that out. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at thatsnotspit.com or at thatsnotspit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find the episode. Josh, thank you one more time so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, being here and talking with you. Yeah. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. 
Hello, 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 that's not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. I learned something delightful the other day while doing, of all things, a deep clean of my patio. There is a drastic difference between filling a space and making a space. Filling a space feels a lot like picking things up and putting them down somewhere else, and making a space feels purpose-driven, where anyone walking into the room might exclaim, Oh, wow. What's the purpose of your space? Head on over to the That's Not Spit Instagram page and let us know. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>